Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27 through 32. Begin that read in verse 27. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. The way of the Lord is strength to the upright, But destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked shall not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. We return in our quotation this afternoon to the Reverend Charles Bridges. The fear of the Lord so far from being opposed to is often connected with the hope of the righteous. And well may this hope be gladness for it is accompanied with sweet patience, joyful hope and crowned with a happy issue. It has its origin in eternity. Its substance is Christ and heaven. The foundation is the work of Christ, the security, the unchangeable engagements of God. Who then can doubt its character, a hope that maketh not ashamed, sure and steadfast? Beaming from the precious cross, how does it dry up the penitent's tears? As Bunyan describes on witnessing Christian and hopeful's welcome into the heavenly city, which when I had seen, I wished myself among them. Oh, there must be a reality in that hope which bears us away from earth and makes its meanest heir richer and happier than if he were the sole possessor of this world's glory. Let me hasten towards it, longing yet not impatient. For how can I but desire to change my traveler's lot for my home, my toil for my rest, my sorrow for my joy, my body of sin for the likeness to my Lord, the tents of Kedar for the innumerable company of angels and the church of the firstborn. Charles Bridges on his commentary, Proverbs 10. So in four sermons, we have introduced the overall concept of 27 through 32. We've titled it under the antithesis. We've seen the antithesis in the human race, that there are God's people and not God's people. We have seen the antithesis and made use of it in the way that we order our friendships and associations. We've also made use of it in such a way as to remember that discipline, church discipline, is something that must continue in the church. That the people of God must be purged, right? To purge out the old leaven, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5. And then also, last week we looked at the two ways. The way that leads to life and the other which leads to death and destruction. 
So as we begin then uh, to unpack the verses themselves, 27, 28, 29, and so on, uh, what we're going to see, first of all, is the characterization, let me just kind of run through it, those who have the fear of the Lord, the hope of the righteous, strength to the upright, the righteous, and the righteous, the just. So those are the names on one side of the ledger. The names on the other side of the ledger are the wicked, uh, the workers of iniquity, the wicked, the froward tongue, and the wicked. So we have uh, indeed these, these two poles that are set forth, right? Children, you know what a pole is with regard to magnets, right? You've worked with magnets maybe in your home school, and you know that magnets have a positive side and a negative side. And then if you try to take two magnets and put them together as negative to negative, they you can't put them together, but negative to positive, and click, they join right up, right? But you know that there are two poles. And the poles here we have are not magnetic poles, but they're moral poles. The righteous and the wicked. They're opposite ends of the scale, if you will. So, this is an interesting study to undertake because of the titles that are used, and we must understand them. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be upright? And we've talked about this before, so allow only for a a minute or two on this, but remember that we're not righteous because we do good things. There are a lot of people that do good things in this world. Right? A lot of police officers, they do good things. But they may not be righteous. There are some people in this world that are righteous, and like me, they're sinners. Right? The righteous people of this world, are they sinners? Well, they are sinners. So what is Solomon talking about here when he uses the term righteous and wicked? And it's, it's obvious that throughout the scriptures, I mean, we could turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, to learn that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that he was righteous by faith. We could learn that Abel understood righteousness by faith alone. We could see that in Moses, who chose the reproach of Christ, Greater riches than all that Egypt had to offer. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What do we mean then when we say that these are the righteous and these are the wicked? We mean that these are the righteous in that they hear what God says and they embrace it. And they believe it and they flee to Jesus Christ. They know that they're sinners under the judgment of God, except he should be merciful to them in Christ. Those are the ones we call righteous. And who are the wicked? The wicked are the ones who may, through their own efforts, try to find favor with God. And so outwardly, their lives may look pretty good. But they're wicked. Because they have not, like Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They have gone about to establish their own righteousness. And in so doing, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Okay, so this, is, this would be what we would talk about with regard to the standing righteous and the standing wicked. However, to drop the other shoe... Who are the righteous and who are the wicked? Those who are righteous by faith alone, remember that their righteousness before God is the righteousness of Christ, 
But it is also by that faith. That is not a dead faith. But as we have confessed, it works through love. And so there are some things that they do in this world that give witness to their righteousness before God, though those things that they do are not their righteousness before God. So, as we have confessed in our larger catechism, justification is inseparably joined to sanctification. Or actually, we say it the other way, the, the, the other way around. Although sanctification be inseparably joined to justification. And so, there is this general sweep that comes through the scriptures that some have found confusing because then they, they just want to look at what people are doing rather than who people are with regard to their new hearts. Some people even do that about themselves. They'll say, I'm doing good things, so because I'm doing these good things, God must love me. Right? That's the wrong way to reason. We want to reason, have I fled to Christ? As we heard earlier today. So who are the righteous and who are the wicked? The righteous are those who are righteous by faith alone, and yet whose lives exhibit a growing understanding of God's commands and they're following after that. They're not righteous because of their following after that. They're righteous by faith alone. But their lives do show forth the good works that are the fruits of a true and lively faith. Okay? Alright, so we wanted to sort that out before we begin. Now, verse 27 is an interesting verse. It says that the fear of the Lord prolongeth Days, or it addeth days. But the years of the wicked shall be shortened. Let me ask you a question, beloved. Is that always true? Is Solomon speaking absolutely here? Or is he speaking relatively and exhortatively? And I think you know the answer to that question. He's speaking relatively and exhortatively. That is, like we heard earlier today, children in... Ephesians chapter 6, we said, we said what? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with thee and thou mayest live long upon the earth. That God has, in some sense, tied a promise of long life so far as it shall serve for his glory and our good to obedient children, to fifth commandment keeping. Now, if we understand the fifth commandment in its broadest sense, it's obvious then that if we're disrespecting all kinds of authority, our lives could very well end up being shortened. We could suffer some kind of capital punishment. Or we could turn away from godly advice, place ourselves in danger, be injured, and from that injury maybe succumb to that injury and end our lives. There are practical ways that that fifth commandment can work out in that way and here the same is true right the fear of the lord prolongeth days but i want to talk to you about what it means to prolong days and i want to make sure we understand this from the old testament because we'll remember won't we from paul's discussion in galatians chapter 4 that the old testament church is what we call a church under age it's a church in its minority um, a child that is in a royal house, he may be heir to the throne. In fact, his father may have died and he is the king, but he's not going to act as king at six years of age. 
He's going to be under tutors and governors until the time of his majority, until the time he's able really to step in to that inheritance. We've seen this even in the Bible, haven't we? We, we saw it in King Josiah. We saw it in King Joash, right? There have been a, a couple of instances where a boy came to the throne. And we, we, we rightly reason in that, that he had tutors and governors to help him to govern for certainly a child of eight years, at least in every ordinary circumstance, doesn't have the wisdom to reign over a people. The young man, Solomon, when he came to the throne said, Oh Lord, I am but a child. I need wisdom. The same was true of the church of the Old Testament. It was a, a childish church. And so sometimes the Lord gave them uh, promises and rewards and things that were temporally based to teach them about heavenly realities. This doesn't need a lot of proof, although in some, in some circles, if you begin to speak like this, they will begin to run you out and say that you're dispensational. I think this, this is just good Bible teaching. That when we look at this promise of a long life here in Proverbs chapter 10, we don't need to receive that as an absolute long life promise and then wonder why righteous folks are taken away early. This is not an absolute promise. It's an exhortative promise that has indeed a spiritual referent that we ought to understand. That's the point, I think, that Solomon is making here. Thankfully for Solomon, the Lord extended his life in such a way that he was able to repent after his time of apostasy with his foreign wives. And so the Lord did advance Solomon's years as that righteous one. And Ecclesiastes tells us that he came toward the end of his life and repented of his prior apostasy. Well, we are thankful indeed to hear such an encouraging report as that and we recognize that if there was hope for Solomon there may be hope for us as well Uh, not only this but we want to keep in mind that in scripture especially in the Proverbs long life is the fruit of wisdom The, 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 the same author that tells us here the fear of the Lord prolongs days in chapter 3 of the Proverbs says that wisdom also prolongs days We'll turn to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 2. How about verse 1? My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. And then we skip down to verse 16. Verse 13. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is every one that retaineth. So those are not absolute things. Those are general exhortative sort of promises that tell us that wisdom is something so valuable that we ought to be seeking after it. Here, the fear of the Lord is something so valuable, it generally prolongs days. 
Yet, I don't want to limit the prolonging of our days simply to our days upon earth, but I want to parlay that into eternal life. And this is essentially what Solomon is telling us here. Remember that those promises given to a church under age were given to them under the auspices of earthly things that they might learn to reason to heavenly things. And we only need to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 to prove that, to learn that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah sought a country that was not the land of promise, the land of Canaan, but a heavenly country, a city whose builder and maker is God, and he hath prepared for them that heavenly city. Okay, so our dispensationalist brethren have erred in saying that the Jews are one day going to get the land back. They got it all in Joshua. Joshua chapter 21, Joshua will, will, will proclaim that all of the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God gave to the Israelites in the conquest of Canaan. They did receive it, but that wasn't the sum and substance of the promise. They were to learn to reason from the land that they received to the heavenly city and their communion with God. And so when Solomon writes long life here, I think that he's speaking of long life beyond mere earthly longevity. And he's speaking about eternal life. And that the fear of the Lord engenders eternal life, not simply life here upon this old sad planet. Right? Okay, so we will also say that there are times where the righteous are taken away prematurely. Is that true? It is. In fact, sometimes that's used as a negative apologetic, isn't it? Have you ever been talking to someone who's an enemy of Christ and, and his word? And, and, and they'll say, oh, well, if God really cared, why does the righteous old grandma die in a flood? Or something like that. They always want to make it, you know, some of the most helpless and seemingly innocent people in the world. As if that righteous or that, that, that Christian old grandma didn't have sins of her own. <laughs> right? But it is true. It is true that the righteous are taken away. But haven't, beloved, we already heard a little bit about that in Philippians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul said that it is far better to depart and be with Christ. And so Solomon is not talking about earthly longevity here primarily. He's parlaying that into eternal life. And I want to parlay that in our in our. In the rest of our time here, as we take a look at a few things, to abundant life as well. The life that we're talking about here is not just long life, not just eternal life, but Jesus says, John 10.10, 10, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That there's a life that belongs to the people of this world that is fraught with, although they would deny it, it is fraught with sin and misery. But not so the believer. Not so the one who has the fear of the Lord. Well, let's take a look at a, at a few passages of Scripture together. We want to talk about uh, the life of the righteous. Sometimes we understand it is taken away prematurely. Look at Isaiah chapter 39 with me for a moment. I remember the first time I read this passage years and years ago. I was left a little bit nonplussed. I, Really, Hezekiah? Is that what you want to say about this? 
Listen to the words of Hezekiah here. Verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. And there was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in thy house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come, that all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day, shall be carried to Babylon, and nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which, shalt, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, Come on, Hezekiah, you can do better than that. And yet, the more you reflect on that, the more you understand the truth of what Hezekiah has said. What he has done is he's taken a circumstance and he's found the good in it and he's blessed God for it. Yeah, I will bless God. Not because he's going to take away my sons and daughters and they'll come in and conquer our city. Not because of that, but because he said this will happen after my days. He's going to preserve my life in peace. And shall I not thank him for that? It's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? In a nutshell, these people come to see Hezekiah. It says, they came, he, oh, they came unto me, he says. Ooh, ooh, this, this, you know, this kind of, well, it tickled my, my fancy. They came to me. They, came to, they heard I was sick. They came to me. And then what? What, what did you show them, Hezekiah? Everything. <laughs> Isaiah says, you know what? They'll be back. And they're going to empty it all out. But it'll be on your sons and, and your daughters. And Hezekiah says, well, at least there's that much good in that, that the Lord would spare me to have to see that. Interesting, isn't it? Did Hezekiah live long enough to see that? No. Was his life cut shorter than that? It was. This thing here in, in Isaiah 39 comes immediately on the heels of Isaiah 38 where Hezekiah was sick and he pulled up his knees into the bed and turned his face to the wall and prayed unto God. And God said, okay, I'm going to give you 15 more years. Now we know why God doesn't tell us how many more years we have. What do we do with those years if we know how long they are? We get complacent like Hezekiah did. Right? But God does encourage us with the promise of long life to those who fear him. 
Turn with me in your Bibles also, please, to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. You'll remember good King Josiah who came to the throne when he was eight years of age. You'll remember also a few thousand years later a man by the name of Edward. Edward VI who came to the throne when he was nearly eight years of age and exacted many good reforms in the country of England in the three kingdoms actually and that he was called the English Josiah because he came to the throne at eight years of age. As Josiah of old was taken away early, so also was Edward VI. So we can remember that, can't we? That'll help us to remember what Solomon is talking about here. And so what happens in Proverbs, sorry, Second Chronicles 34? Well, what happens is Josiah has been prosecuting a reform. He has gone even up into the northern kingdom, right? And they've done... The iconoclasm, they've taken down the altars and so on, they've torn all that down. And then also what he's done is he has commissioned a rebuilding of the temple because it has fallen into disrepair in the days of Manasseh and beyond. And so uh, we have this building project. And what happens during this building is that the priests find, quote, a book. Now it's difficult to know exactly what book it was that they found. It could have been the book of the covenant, right? The thing that we're reading in Exodus right now. It could have been the entirety of the Old Testament that had been written up until that time. That would have in, in, included some other prophetic works up until that time, you know, from Samuel and the judges and so on. Might have been something even that big. Might have been the entirety of the Pentateuch. We don't know exactly, but they found a book. And so Josiah called the man in that found the book and he read it in his hearing. From beginning to end. And when Josiah heard that book read. He rent his clothes. And he said go to the prophet Huldah. That lives in Jerusalem. And find out what's going to happen. Because of all these words which the Lord has written. So we'll begin our reading in verse 26. Verse 23. And she answered them. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Tell ye. The man that sent you to me, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes, and weep, before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. 
So they brought word again to the king. Interesting, right? So what did Josiah do after that? He continued his reformation. He continued his purging of the land of its idols. He didn't rest upon his laurels. He didn't rest because he had the fear of the Lord. He didn't rest. But let me ask you, did, his, did he live out to the fullness of days? He did not. And this is the puzzling thing if you look at the uh, life of Josiah. And the only thing that makes sense is the words of Huldah the prophet. Right? What happened? Pharaoh Necho came up out of Egypt. And he was getting ready to attack the, the, the Assyrians. And Josiah said, uh-uh, no you don't. I'm coming out to meet you. And Necho said, Josiah, don't do that. I'm sent on an errand from Jehovah to do this. So don't stand in my way. But Josiah did. And he was taken out. He died that day in the valley of Megiddo. He died prematurely. Why? Because the Lord would spare him the evil of the destruction of Jerusalem that was to come. Is there a place in the scriptures where we might look explicitly at that? Yes. Turn with me back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 57. Verse 1. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. There we have it. It's explicitly stated by the prophet Isaiah that there are times when the old grandma who has lived uprightly all her days before the Lord is taken away prematurely. Why would the Lord do that? When he has promised that the righteous, the ones who fear him, will prolong their days. Well, he takes them away from evil to come. That's why. He's merciful to them even in their deaths. He has his eyes upon them. He will not suffer them to see the evil that comes. And so he takes them away. As a part of his mercy to them. So we know for a fact, don't we? If we turn back to Proverbs 10. As we compare scripture to scripture. That Solomon is not speaking absolutely here. But let me ask you. When Hezekiah went away prematurely. And when Josiah went away prematurely. Brothers and sisters, where did they go? We know where they went. They went directly into the presence of their Lord. They went directly to begin that glorious eternal life that will one day advance and could only be advanced by the resurrection of the body and the reuniting of that to their souls. They have everything else that they will ever have. They are indeed alive today. He, he, uh, he was not the God of Josiah. He is the God of Josiah. Isn't that right? Isn't that how Jesus says it? That God said to Moses at the bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're still alive. I still have them. They are mine. So, if we were to take this in a baldly literal fashion, we might be left scratching our heads. But the Bible doesn't do that for us. The Bible rounds it out, explains it properly for us, so that we will know what is being spoken about truly 
And that is that those who fear the Lord have in this life an abundant life and in the and then whether they live long or short here upon the earth, they have an eternity of glory and bliss and joy waiting for them. This is what Solomon means in this passage. Turn with me uh, to a few other passages in the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 25. Notice that the Lord promises not only to care for those who fear him and grant them that longevity that we've talked about, but he promises that to their children as well. In Psalm 25, verse 11, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. You hear that? His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. We flip over to Psalm 37 for a moment, and verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young, and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. And then finally, Psalm 112, verses 1 and 2. Praise you the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth forever. Unto the upright there ariseth light and darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion, and righteous, and so on. And so we have those kinds of promises in the scripture. Beloved, let us remember those promises, and seek then to fear the Lord, to have our days prolonged, and to have that blessing accrue to us, and to our children after us. So, the full way then, that this blessing is manifested of Proverbs 10, is in the believer's eternal life, which is that abundant life that begins now. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief cometh not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And I got to thinking on the abundant life for a while, and I thought that we would take just a little bit of a route here and talk about that for a few moments. Um, For Solomon's part, he has a firm confidence in the mercy of the Lord, even in the potential or threat of his life being cut short. The Apostle Paul was a good example of this same confidence in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9, what we read today, Philippians 1, 21 through 26, and in Acts chapter 21, 11 through 14, where everyone is telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul, you're going to be arrested and you might die. Paul says, I'm not afraid to die. 
Why do you, what mean ye to weep and to break my heart? I'm not ready. I'm ready not only to be arrested to go, but to die for the Lord Jesus if that be his will. There is a confidence of our spiritual longevity even in the face of what is left here. And it is not just that. It's not just that, oh, if I can just hang on here for a little bit, I get glory. You know, pie in the sky as they say, right? Ice cream at the end. It may be Brussels sprouts now. I know some of you like Brussels sprouts, so maybe that's not such a good example anymore. You know, but it's going to be pie later or ice cream later. Like everybody likes ice cream, right? But beloved, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that this life that Solomon has described as the life of the fear of the Lord, or as we've gone through the rest of that passage, the, the upright, the righteous, and so on, that this life, Jesus teaches us, and the rest of Scripture teaches us, that this is a blessed life. It's an abundant life. It's not just that we can hope for longevity, but we can hope for quality here, now, in this life. Things that accrue to the life of faith that the unrighteous simply cannot have. They can't have it. They don't have it. They go on entertaining themselves to death and distracting themselves to death. They won't deal with the real issues of life because they're just too vexing for them. But beloved, the Christian takes hold of the issues of life with both hands because we know who's at the helm. And he's promised us an abundant life. Some might be tempted to say, Pastor, my life doesn't feel very abundant. Well, that's possible. If Christ has promised an abundant life, why am I so sad? Why am I so depressed? Why am I so dissatisfied? Why am I so discontented? Why do I feel like I need so much more than what I have? Well, there may be many reasons for that. But a lot of the reason is that we desire the things that the Lord in his care over us has withheld from us for our good. He's a good father. He will not indulge his children with spiritually unhealthy fare. Parents, I've watched you do this. You have your children sitting down at the table with you and you tell them, eat your vegetables. You tell them, uh, no, you can't have that cookie now. You have to finish that which is healthy first. You keep your children from unhealthful things, don't you? You know what? So does our father. Now, those children, when they don't get the cookie that they wanted before the nourishing soup that you put before them, they can do a couple of things. They can turn it to a very miserable experience. Or they can, with contentment, take up the care that you're offering them. Many Christians are the same way. They want this and that from God. They don't get this and that from God. Then they blame God because their lives aren't abundant. Whereas what God had set before them was abundant. But they looked away from it. Or maybe even turned their nose up at it. So they might have something else instead. Our Father will not indulge us with spiritually unhealthy fare. 
because he is a good father. We fret over money. We fret over acceptance. We fret over, you know, being valued in this world. How others perceive us. We want our lives to matter to others. We fret over being appreciated or cared for. And all of these things that we seek are from fallen human beings. If we, if we remember the theologian that we read last week, the person of a day who is here today and gone tomorrow, that's whose approval and acceptance that we're seeking rather than God's. And God says, no, I won't give that to you. I'm instead going to turn your eyes to me because that's where the abundance lies. Remember the words of James in chapter 4? Turn with me to James 4 for a moment. Remember, James is an apostle. This is the apostle James, the guy that we read about moderating the assembly in Acts chapter 15. Right? James Alpheus. And his brother was Judas Alpheus. He's the author of the, of the book of Jude. Okay? So this is not, this is not uh, you know, Luther was wrong. This is not an epistle of straw. This is an epistle of God. So notice what James says. From whence come, chapter 4, wars and fightings from among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war and ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your own desires. Not the desires that your heavenly Father has for you. Oh Lord, I, I want to be accepted more. I want people to love me. I want them to approve of me. I want them to, to admire me. And the Lord says, no, you don't need that. You need to seek me. You need to seek after the abundance that I give you. This is the abundant life, child, is what he's saying to us. What does he say in Isaiah 55? Hearken diligently to me and your soul will delight itself in fatness. We think fatness is from people of a day. How much they profess to accept and receive us. And so we fret over this and we fret over that. And we don't receive them. And why don't we receive them? Why does God withhold them from us? Because they're not good for us. He takes things away from us. And parents, I've seen you do this too. We had a policy in the Riddell household. You've heard me say this before. We said to our children, if you can't share, then you can't have. And so if they were playing with something, and someone said, hey, can I play with that? And they said, no. Well, then we said, thank you. We'll take that now. Because if you can't share, you can't have. Now, they can make that a miserable event, or they can learn from it. If they make it a miserable event, I guarantee you in the Riddell household, it got a little bit more miserable. But the Lord is like that too. We can be miserable over the things that God denies us because they would hurt us if we had them and then we'll become more miserable beyond that. This is not abundant life. The abundant life is those things that the Lord promises to us. And it's not found in serving, I'm sorry, it's not found in receiving service from the persons of a day. The services of love and admiration and accolades and 
props and all those other things that the world clamors after. Awards. Everybody gets an award these days. Instead, it's learning to serve Him with our strength. And we will find that He is a good master. Children, when we described Ephesians chapter 6 earlier, what did we say? That God offers promises for his service, doesn't he? Promises that it may be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth. He promises an abundant life. But if we're inward focused and if it's all about how others treat us and so on, if we suspend our happiness on the reactions and things that others do, beloved, that will always be a losing proposition. That is a recipe not for happiness, but for certain misery. But if we look to our Heavenly Father and the abundant life that He supplies, then come unto me and let your soul delight itself in fatness, Fatness is just a Hebrew term for abundance. That's all it means. So we're past time. Let's turn back to Isaiah 55 for a moment and read that passage in a little bit more fullness and then we'll close. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come, buy Wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend your money for that which is not bread? Let me colloquialize that. Why do you look for accolades from people? And your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me and eat that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. I said that was the last passage. I was mistaken. (laughs) I want to take you just one more passage. And hopefully I won't have to say I'm mistaken again. (laughs) Lamentations chapter Three, just for a moment, because I want to talk to you about a guy that perhaps might have had reason to complain a little bit. Jeremiah had watched the city burn down around him. He'd been dragged off to Egypt by idolaters that worshiped the Queen of Heaven. He had been thrown into a dungeon. Is that the abundant life? Well, let's hear what he has to say about it, whether or not it is abundant. Verse 27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be that there is hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly or from his heart nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth to to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High. To subvert a man in his cause the Lord approveth not. Who is he that saith and it cometh not to pass when the Lord commanded, commanded it not or commandeth it not? 
Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto the God of heavens, God in the heavens. We have transgressed and rebelled, thou hast not pardoned. Thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain and hast not pitied. Just a little bit before that, Jeremiah in the midst of the ruins of Jerusalem says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. What did Jeremiah do? He hearkened diligently unto me, right? Put it in the words of Isaiah. And his soul, even in the midst of destruction, dwelt in fatness. He knew the mercy of the Lord. Rather than clamoring for the city, rather than clamoring for the destruction of the enemy, rather than any temporal or earthly thing, he found the abundant life in his Savior in the midst of a temporal thing. May I say, beloved, that many people, Christian people, who have bought the line of the world that they are deserved or owed all of these happinesses and things, what have they done except they have taken even the good things that God gave them and saw them as mean and paltry gifts rather than the great blessings that they do not deserve. The abundant life, beloved, is found in the things that God has put around us. We must not look away from them to wistfully to some other thing that cannot last and will always bring misery. No. The life that Solomon promises here is not only longevity that is into eternity. It is also abundant. Let us then take our eyes off the things we think in this world will make us happy and fix them upon Christ because that is the fatness of the soul. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for those things that we have discussed this day. And Lord, we do confess that often living in this world, we look wistfully over the fence at someone else's stuff or the things the world feeds us that the world says we ought to have rather than looking unto Thee. And so we turn away from the abundance that thou hast provided, thy new mercies every morning, the children at our feet, the grandchildren and our children's children, the great provision that we enjoy, the spiritual riches that, we, that are beyond what we could ask or think, the abundance that we have, O oh Lord, often we are too ready to trade away for something that the world tells us we deserve. Lord, stop our ears to such deception and lies and open our ears that we might hearken diligently unto thee and live that life of long, even eternal blessedness and abundance in thee. We thank thee in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.